helemaal niet idioot. Slavoj Žižek was dissident in Tito's Joegoslavië, maar noemt zich nu weer communist. De Sloveense filosoof en psychoanalyticus schreef de afgelopen decennia ruim 50 boeken en werd populair door een eindeloze reeks even inspirerende als provocerende publieke optredens. Daarin toonde het denkbeest uit Ljubljana zich een welsprekend criticus van de sociale orde sinds het einde van de Koude Oorlog. Via het beeld confronteren we hem met de tegenlichtthema's van 2010. De economische crisis in Crisis als Kans, Energie en Ecologie, Exit Afghanistan en Crisis in de Democratie. Slavoj Žižek, the floor is yours. Any preliminary comments? Yeah, I like this idea that you will bombard me with images from reality. Images are the true reality today, I claim. We cannot simply say, discard the images and you see reality. If we discard the images, nothing remains, just some pure abstraction. Uh, images are reality for us today. Let's start with the economic crisis. Jim Rogers is an investor who made millions on the American market before he moved to Singapore. Here's his diagnosis of our economical perils. Had capitalism been allowed to work, we wouldn't be in this situation now. If back in 1994 or 1998 people had been allowed to collapse, we would not be, we wouldn't have had as the prosperity we had in the, the early part of this decade. Um, on the other hand, we wouldn't have the collapse that we have now. We had an artificial prosperity. Now we're having an artificial, uh, an artificial decline, if you will. That's, that's government interference. That's not capitalism that caused that. There are 300 million Americans who are now having to pay for the million financial people in the financial district and say the other 10 million who did foolish things. I mean, that's absurd. It's not the way the system's supposed to, the way the system's supposed to work. Incompetent people fail. Competent people come along, take over their assets, reorganize, and the system starts over. It's called creative destruction. It's a capitalist kind of thing. But what's happening now is the government is coming along and taking the money away from the competent people, giving it to the incompetent people, and saying, now you compete with the competent people with their money. I mean, so the whole system is weakened. That's called socialism. You should recognize that. <laughs> you should recognize that system. That's what the socialists do. That's what the communists tried to do. Uh, I really found this obscene and ridiculous. Not because I count myself as a communist, but because, my God, one thing is clear. Those who got us into this crisis, at least here, it's not social democrats, it's not the state, it's precisely the capitalist system running out of control, not being too much controlled by the state and so on and so on. This is what I find uh, problematic here. Namely, from my communist youth, I remember how the communists, when pe things obviously didn't function in communist regimes, they 
reasoned exactly in the same way. They said, no, 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 this is not the crisis of the communist system. It's because we were not pure enough as communists. We had too much, we allowed too many capitalist elements and so on and so on. Here is the same, this is the fundamentalist answer. You never admit that the system is wrong. You try to put the blame on how we were not faithful enough to the fundamentals of the system. So again, at least one thing we should admit, the crisis that we have now, Greenspan admitted it, my God, is the crisis of liberal capitalism, not the crisis of state intervention or whatever. The economic crisis manifested itself at first in the American housing market. Let's listen to a young American banker whose family bank didn't want to lend to people who couldn't afford the costs. I'd like to say something about what <laughs> happened to a bank that I think loaned ethically for a long time, which is the, the bank that my family owned, which um, in 2002, we, weren't, we were doing the kind of loans we're all talking about today. The part of my family that owned the majority of the bank started knocking on the door saying, why aren't we making the kind of money that all the other banks are making? Ironically, um, by the time they finally fired my dad and approved the sale process, decided to put the bank on sale, the bank was so valuable because we had no bad loans. So then it became a situation where everybody wanted to buy the bank because they needed these quality assets. It's incredibly difficult to operate ethically under the pressure that was created in the last 10 years to make massive amounts of money. So <laughs> you're trying to do it and you just get sold. I think we do touch here a central problem, which is that in this crisis, it is absolutely ridiculous to refer to some uh, ethical values, like even Vatican, the Pope, or some person around the Pope said, this is not the crisis of capitalism, it's the crisis of our values, of our ethics, and so on. No, exactly not. It's the system itself, in its normal functioning, the global capitalist system, which is pushing you towards violating some elementary ethical rules. This is why I was strictly shocked at how that the great swindler Bernard Madoff was elevated into the symbol of this corrupted banking speculator who ruined uh, thousands of people and so on and so on. But my God, it's not his psychology, it's not his personal corruption. Madoff just, in a way, embodied the system, in the sense that he did, maybe a little bit more, in a more radical way than others, where the system was pushing it. Here's a guy whose financial products helped crash Wall Street. Making a lot of money is like taking a drug. It is the same, you get, the, what is it, pharaohs or whatever. It's, a, it's very, when somebody hands you a million dollar check or a five million dollar check, you know, you feel good head to toe. It's like, it is very similar to a drug. And you want to, and you like to maintain that feeling. Uh, 
it's something that uh, you know you have to in your mind realize hey yeah, you know there's only you know life is short you want more yes oh if i'm making five million I, I i should be making 50 because i'm a genius you know if somebody hands you you're 30 25 years old hands you a million dollars or five million dollars then not only do you feel good but then you have your your no question in your mind that you are a genius and that the rest of the world owes you know you're just so much better than everybody else that happens nice point but what i would have said is again just to repeat what i already said let's not approach capitalism as a psychological problem the solution is not we should somehow overgrow or get rid of this addiction to money i want more and more and more the problem is to see to analyze how this attitude is generated by what in the old-fashioned marxist terminology we once called an objective social system part of which are such attitude their attitudes they are generated by the system and so again let's not make out of it a psychological problem what do I mean by this? Here, we, I would like to mention uh, an example that I found, find wonderful, irresistible. This is a strange phenomenon, you remember, called uh, canned laughter on TV, when laughter is part of the soundtrack itself. And it's very strange, a very strange thing. Like, you watch some stupid TV show, tired in the evening, like Cheers, Friends, and you don't even have to laugh. The TV screen laughs for you. The proof is that, at least it holds for me, I hope I'm not a unique idiot, that uh, after seeing a show like Cheers, TV serial, even if I don't laugh, the TV set laughs for me, at the end I'm relieved, as if I have laughed. Here we have emotions, an emotional discharge, but it doesn't happen psychological to me, it's kind of objectivized, but nonetheless it works. It's something the same, like hand laughter, this capitalist greed. So again, let's be precise here, let's not play the easy, moralistic, psychological game of how we should change. No, the most we can do within these coordinates is to engage in charity. Uh, to give money for the poor and so on and so on, but this for me is an obscene solution. It's what I ironically called chocolate laxative. It exists as a product. I bought it in California myself. It's, we all know that the association of chocolate is, of course, constipation. But there you can buy chocolate which works as a laxative. Like you know that the poison is the cure to itself. And this is the function of charity today, I claim. What do people like Bill Gates do? First you grab all money you can, 40, 50 millions, billions, sorry, then you give half of it back and you are the greatest humanitarian in the history of mankind and so on and so on. Charity is today, I claim, part of the logic of the system itself. It has a very specific function, the function of depoliticizing the problems. The idea is that through charity, capitalism can redeem itself, can be itself the medicine to the evil it causes. And again, then we have get all these rhetorics, like socialism doesn't work, let's all get together through charity, let's bring a, a release to poor, pe poor people starving in Africa, and so on and so on. I find this utterly disgusting, but again, a crucial ideological phenomenon. <laughs>
Dr. Mark Faber is another investor whose monthly newsletter is called The Gloom, Boom and Doom Report. This is his take on our near future. The experiment of the central banks and the fiscal packages that have been enacted by Western governments will bitterly fail. But it may first work for a while in the sense that if you have cracks in a building and you put white paint on it, it looks better for a while. The problem will be that the interest payments on the government debt will go up dramatically in the US. So you could end up with essentially a structure where 50% of tax revenues will eventually be used just to pay the interest on the government debt. And at that time, the system breaks down, then you have to monetize. And then you go into hyperinflation. Hyperinflation usually is bad for the average household. The average household doesn't participate. His real income goes down. And then the end is that in order to distract the people from the problems, you go to war. Then people ask, where? Where is the enemy? Well, for sure, the Americans will find someone somewhere. That for sure. They can invent somebody. Again, my reactions to this line of thoughts are mixed. On the one hand, yes, I'm also a pessimist. I think that one of the possible consequences of the crisis is that new wars on terror, on whatever, will have to be reinvented to keep the economy going. On the other hand, again, I don't see an easy way out. Because even if we will have really to pay half of our tax money for interest rates and so on, what was the alternative? I claim that one a year ago, from the standpoint of the system, it had to be done what was done. Obama, by giving hundreds of billions of dollars and so on, didn't have a choice there. That's the global, if I use this old term, irrationality of capitalism. It's not that we could have done something different. Why? Because it's not even a matter of economic analysis. As everyone knows, capitalism today is a matter of everyday religion in the sense of it's built on trust. And as Joseph Stiglitz put it in a wonderful way, he said that even if the theoretical foundations in economic sense of economic science of these me financial measures, even if theoretically they are problematic, wrong, they may work. Because the point is not their objective value, the point is Will they succeed in bringing back some kind of a basic trust? That's how the system works. I think that you, one should never underestimate the infinite plasticity of capitalism. You know, capitalism thrives through crisis. You know that Maoist formula, from defeat to defeat to the final victory. Capitalism always regenerates itself. So I don't think I don't think that we should look for any point when things will finally collapse. It, this is too naive. It will, tensions will gradually grow. And we will see where this will push us. The only thing, this is why I remain a communist. There is one thing, the only really important thing from all this. The basic message is that we are approaching a series of problems, economic, new apartheid, new poverty, new hunger, ecological problems, how to deal with biogenetics, and so on and so on. And that it's becoming more and more clear that neither the market nor the state 
or combination of states will do the job. If you're right, Mr. Zizek, that our current problems, for instance our ecological troubles, cannot be solved within the parameters of capitalism, then what about this system? This is probably a scene from China. And uh, I think that China is the key, but not in the sense, will we control China and so on and so on. It is as if in today's China, all the inconsistencies of today's capitalism are exploding. Let's be frank. Till now, there was one big argument for capitalism, which is, Maybe capitalism needs 10, 20 years here and there of uh, dictatorship, but sooner or later it brings a pressure for democracy. But I think that something new is now emerging in Asia and expanding all around the world gradually. What? My good friend Peter Sloterdijk recently wrote something wonderful. He wrote that he asked himself a question. To which person? from our time, will they maybe be building monuments 100 years from now in the future? His answer is Lee Kuan Yew, the president for long years of Singapore, who was the first to invent and very successfully practice what today we officially refer to in these poetic terms as capitalism with Asian values, and which really means if we cut off the poetry, uh, authoritarian capitalism. What if effectively something is emerging in today's China and Singapore and so on, which is a capitalism, even more efficient, dynamic, productive in its own capitalist terms than our Western liberal capitalism, but a capitalism which no longer, as it were, naturally demands democracy, but works even better with an authoritarian political structure. Right now, there's a, the new Tavidian International Eco City uh, should be 150 square kilometers and uh, will house about uh, 500,000 to 1 million people in the long run. And just in one year, roads are paved, residential areas are built. The speed of the implementation that is still uh, surprising. The political structure in China, with its one-party system, indeed it gives a unique way when the decision-making is reached at the central policy level, and that policy become a very important priority for all the levels down. And all government leaders will be judged their performance on also this environmental performance. So once decisions made, that can be implemented very quickly. 
Well, it sounds nice, but I see a couple of problems. First, uh, you know, this is the dream of state socialists, that the only way to cope with ecological crisis is within a more authoritarian political structure, where you can avoid this endless procrastination of the democratic debates, and when a decision is met, it's implemented. The point is, is the state, especially if it's a one-party non-democratic state, can one trust such a state to really consequently pursue an ecologically sound politics? I have my doubts, and the argument is again, China itself. Okay, maybe this eco-city or whatever will work. Let me mention the other Chinese gigantic project, the Three Gorges Dam. You know, a friend from China recently told me something pretty terrifying, namely that uh, the large majority of Chinese geologists know, but it's an information which the Chinese authorities try to keep secret, that the big earthquake which hit central China about, I think it was two or three years ago, that it was the first man-made earthquake. Why? Because uh, the idea is that these gigantic new artificial lakes, which were made by the big dams, are precisely above the fault lines beneath the crust of the earth, uh, which determine and trigger the earthquakes. So isn't this something pretty terrifying? Not our impotence, but our almost our of humanity omnipotence, in the sense that we can even cause earthquakes, but we don't know the scope of our omnipotence. Which is why some ecologists have a very beautiful idea, which is, I think, crucial if we are to confront properly the ongoing ecological crisis. That today we are, you know how you, uh, uh, how you enumerate the geological eras, Pleistocene and so on and so on, that we are now on the threshold of a new era they call it Anthropocene, where humanity is no longer just one among the living species, but it literally is becoming a geological factor. Here, I think, we come to the next crucial conclusion. Maybe, paradoxically, we should accept that nature doesn't exist. What do I mean by this? Not in any crazy subjectivist way, there is no nature, we are just constructing nature through our spirit or whatever, but in the sense that the image of nature that we spontaneously accept, nature as a balanced, harmonized circulation, which is then destroyed through excessive human agency, that nature doesn't exist. Nature is in itself, a series of mega catastrophes. Nature is crazy. Things go wrong all the time in nature. Just think about oil, oil, our main energy source. Can we even imagine what kind of a gigantic ecological catastrophe had to have happened millions of years ago so that we have oil? This is nature. What we should do? The first thing I claim is that we should accept our full alienation from nature. The problem is not science and technology. They may be part of the problem in the sense that they are causing problems. But at the same time, they are the only solution. 
The solution is not to feel more organic with Mother Earth, to go to the forest and so on. We are already within technology. We should remain open and just patiently work. Work how? Also with much stronger social discipline. I'm not talking about state terror, but social discipline. I think that, and for me it's not even a sad lesson, that, that maybe one of the consequences of ecological crisis will be that this basically American way of life vision of free spending, uh, this individualist liberty, consumation and so on and so on, we will have to get out of this and invent a new mode of living together as humans, which will involve a much greater sense of solidarity and social discipline. I'm not afraid to say this. Another problem that's keeping us busy is the security issue, now culminating in the war in Afghanistan. Here's what former UN diplomat in Afghanistan, Lakhtar Brahimi, has to say about it. I think that uh, you know, the Americans mainly, frankly, were in Afghanistan for revenge. They were looking for the people who had attacked them, and they had no interest for Afghanistan. Now, not only the Taliban, but more and more Afghans are wondering, who are these, uh, these Western troops here? What are they doing? They are bombing our villages. They are breaking into our houses, uh, you know, roughing about our, our women and children. What is this? This is the Russians all over again. So I think, you know, you need, so exit strategy by all means. I think you need to tell the Afghans, look, this is what we are doing. This is why we are doing it and we will be leaving. You tell the Afghans that you are after Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda is not in Afghanistan anymore. Yes, I think Afghanistan effectively is, let's call it in this, with this bombastic term, the symptom of what is wrong with the United States, States politics. But first, I would like to make a more general point about Afghanistan. Afghanistan is perceived today as the ultimate fundamentalist country. Religious oppression of women and so on and so on. But my God, I'm old enough to remember 40 years ago, Afghanistan was, the same Afghanistan was probably the most tolerant and secular of all Muslim near Middle East states. It had a king who was enlightened pro-Western modernizer. It had a very strong local communist party, which even took power in a coup d'etat. Then, when they started to crumble, Soviet Union intervened to throw out the Soviet Union. Americans helped the future Al-Qaeda and so on, Islamist insurgents. And it is through this process of getting caught into the global politics that Afghanistan became fundamentalist. So this is absolutely a crucial lesson. Today's fundamentalism is not a dark remainder of the past, whatever. It is 
generated as part of the global process. Now, I think the situation there is very complex. I agree that the Americans went there simply to fight an easy target. I claim that far from demonstrating their power, if anything, they demonstrated their impotence there. We have a wonderful joke in my country, but I think it's an international joke about an idiot who looks under the street light for his lost key. And then a friend asked him, why are you looking for the, what are you doing? He said, I'm looking for the key. Friend asked him, but where did you lose the key? He said, back there in the alley in the darkness. And then the friend asked him, but why then are you looking for the key here, not there where you lost it? He said, because here there is more light, it's easier to find the key. It's something like this about Afghanistan. They took on a small defenseless country because they all knew that where Al-Qaeda really is, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, these are their allies, they cannot attack it. The problem that we have today in Afghanistan, which is a real problem, I understand Americans, it's easy to say exit strategy, but we all know with the corruption of uh, the existing American puppet regime, if United States withdrew now, probably, probably in the latest couple of months, Taliban takes over, and that's a fiasco which United States cannot afford. هزار سال جلوتر بوده این خارجی که حال حقوق بشر بده 60 سال 60 سال عمر از این دیگه بی اون از اون امیر از اسلام یاد گرفتن دیگه با کمال تاسف که حال بی حیایی بی عزتی دوزی اینا حقوق بشر و پاونه یک نفر میه یک نفر ناحق میکشه چهار تا طفل تیم همه یتیم میکنه مال میبره وقتی که اون میگیرم که جزا بدن باز میگم حقوق بشر آیا می حقوق بشر حقوق کشته شد بشر نیست I know these stories, and you can play them endlessly. Like in Islam, they had democracy, human rights. Christians claim we invented human rights, and so on and so on. But we should be very clear here. I think that all religions, if you look closely at them, are basically opportunistic. In the sense that you know, God or whoever wrote the text says something, then just to make it sure, he adds the opposite thing, like don't kill, but as Jesus said, if you don't have a sword, buy your uh, sell your clothes to buy a sword, and so on. So uh, the problem is not, is today's so-called Islamic fundamentalism, terrorism grounded in Islam. I mean, it's a contemporary phenomenon, so again, all these stories about big democratic potential in Islam, they are true, but the same goes practically for every religion. If we want to find this democratic potential of Islam, we should look for it elsewhere, I think. For example, in Iran, there, there was an authentic explosion, part of the Khomeini revolution. It was later under the clerical regime oppressed. It is now gradually through the organization of civil society, uh, Re-emerging. But to put a very simple question, should we stay or should we leave Afghanistan? Here, it may surprise you what I will say. I mean, it may surprise you insofar as I count myself as a radical leftist communist and so on. I don't think the solution is to simply, quickly leave. Because first you screw up totally the situation, change Afghanistan 
into a much more fundamentalist country than it ever was, and then you leave. I think, uh, I don't know how to do it, but at least uh, one should have, of course the prospect should be to leave Afghanistan, but again, after, if nothing else, after all that United States did there, as it was just described, all the catastrophe, ruining the entire country and so on and so on. Now to simply leave, it's too easy a way out. This is what I don't like about today's left. Their only message is moralistically, let's leave. Just, oh, then we have clear consciousness and they don't care what will happen there and so on. I hate this easy moralistic left. They mask their lack of ideas by easy moralism, no? That's catastrophe. In 1989, liberal democracy went global. As Francis Fukuyama said, the end of history. Speaking of democracy, let's start by looking at history before its end. to say now, okay, my heart is warm when I see this, but my answer would, would have been that uh, I'm the first to, uh, I don't see any realistic prospect and so on for this thing to return. The story of 20th century communism is over. If I, now, if I am asked how to prevent that this will return. But it is returning in China, it is in power, as the more efficient capitalism than Western capitalism itself. That's what we should worry. Not old communists coming back to power, but old communists where they are already in power, organizing a more efficient and exploitative capitalism than in the West. How will, will you beat them? I claim, crazy and paradoxically as it may sound, that only the radical left can even provide a good theory of what went wrong with communism. The left didn't yet fully realize to what extent the 20th century left in all its versions. Uh, state socialism left, social democratic left, and all this self-management, local self-organization, more creative democratic left, it's over. That game is over. The left will have to begin from the beginning again. And that's the problem. We don't yet see the clear contours, although we see a great need for this. We live, this is why I think we live in very difficult times. It may appear that things are going still relatively well, but I see very dark clouds on the horizon.
But how to chase away these dark clouds? Let's listen to American pundit Fareed Zakaria. And this is the great challenge for Western democracies. Can democracies find a way to tackle the hard issues that, they're, that need to be tackled for the long-term survival and prosperity of their countries? Uh, or, and if they don't, you will, you will delegitimize democracy because people will say this is a useless system. And you know, they're already doing it in some places with declining voter uh, roles and declining public participation and, and a decline of support for the mainstream political parties. You know, the rise of support for fringe elements. Yes, I think democracy, the way we know it, liberal democracy as an element of global capitalism is in crisis and will be more and more in a crisis. What does this mean? The big dilemma that I see can also be put in what I call Fukuyama, ironically, Fukuyamaist terms. He wasn't an idiot. He is not an idiot. His point was not, it's over. We reach the end of history. His point is that with the rise of liberal democratic capitalism, a certain social and political forum remained as the only realistic option. Or to put it in ironic terms, when I was young, we were dreaming about socialism with a human face. It is as if even the large majority of today's left is dreaming about global capitalism with a human face. Nobody asks the questions seriously. Can we really step out of capitalism? Or is the state, the way we know it, here to stay? Can we imagine a society whose public life is not organized through state mechanisms? Nobody does this. All we do today is to think how to introduce new laws or whatever to make uh, the state and our societies more tolerant towards sexual, ethnic, and so on, minorities, more healthcare, more social justice, and so on and so on, but within the system. So the big problem for me is, is this enough? Left-wing intellectuals believed always that they owned the vocabulary of freedom of speech uh, the, and the vocabulary of freedom and tolerance, and that it was the enemy or the opposite side um, that uh, could be described as bigoted uh, or uh, narrow-minded or exclusionary. So that when the tables are turned, when the key words in the old Enlightenment liberal lexicon are taken over by, let's say, the right wing, and given slightly new definitions, uh, left intellectuals don't know what to do. They're entirely discombobulated. They don't realize that they are no longer the same words, the words that they used to march by. And the right wing uh, seems to be infinitely better at taking over the vocabulary of the opponent um, and using it against the opponent, in this case, using it against the left. There is a deep moment of truth in it. Namely, the central event for me in the political process is how, what was up to two, three decades ago, one of the privileged domains of the leftist activity, mass mobilization of civil society for the struggle against racism, women's rights, and so on and so on, 
is now more and more integrated into the right-wing populist rebellions, let's call them. And this is something that should worry us. This is part of a process where the left limited itself more and more to these cultural topics, gay rights, women's rights, even ecology and so on, leaving all this popular appeal, even the class appeal to the right-wingers. The danger I see for democracy in all this is what? I think there is another big shift going on. I think that till now, the, with all variations of course, the basic formula of our politics was two big populist parties. Populist not in the sense of populism, but in the sense of popular rather, aiming at the entire electoral body. Uh, Center-right and center-left party. Let's say Christian conservative and uh, liberal social democratic. This was the basic opposition. Now I think social democracy is disappearing and then we are approaching a new dualism where on the one hand we have a centrist, it can be ex-social democrat, ex-conservatives, it depends on strategic conditions like who will occupy this central place. A central, let's call it technocratic, liberal, capitalist party, which is usually more open towards minorities and so on. And then the right-wing nationalist populist reaction to it. And this is dangerous. Why? Because you know that wonderful title of the book of Freud, Unbehagen in der Kultur, discontent, uneasiness in culture. Today, we obviously live in an era of unbehagen, discontent in liberalism. The problem is who will voice, who will articulate this discontent? Unfortunately, the only channel with functions for uh, more radical forms of discontent is the right-wing populism. Presidente del Popolo della Libertà, l'onorevole Silvio Berlusconi. Non ci sono pianisti, ragazzi. I think Berlusconi is one of the options for our, of our future. Namely, uh, as I said, the only remaining tension seems to be a neutral technocratic liberal capitalist party and nationalist populism. Berlusconi made even a step further and combined the two. He's at the same time corrupted technocrat and a populist. But what makes him if we have in Asia capitalism with uh, democracy with Asian values, we have it here with Italian values. What does this mean? F the first thing I want to emphasize about Berlusconi is his, not only what everybody knows, that politics is rendered more and more an empty spectacles, spectacle, but there is another crucial dimension in this depoliticization of politics, where it, as if, political debate proper is disappearing. What remains is 
spectacle and expert or corrupted whatever concrete economic measures. On the one hand, this systematic dismantling or self-destruction of the minimal dignity of state authority. I mean, Berlusconi, everybody knows, is a living obscenity. I don't think this is just a joke. It's something very strange going on where it's as if the state or political power is discovering that it can function in a totally cynical way, making a joke of itself and so on and so on. But this is one side which shouldn't blind us for the other side of Berlusconi. Are we even aware that for over a year now, from July 2008, Italy is formally in an emergency state. The, in all Italy, emergency state was proclaimed a year and a half ago. Why? Because this measure uh, renders it possible for the government to deploy army within Italy itself and use it. And they did, they started against immigrants, then against mafia in Napoli, now they want to use it in city parks and so on to prevent rapes, whatever. And the, the shocking thing is how people uh, accepted this. This is an ominous image of our future. This is, look at Italy if you want to see how our future authoritarianism will look. It's not the old-style authoritarianism where all of a sudden you awaken one morning and a voice tells you all the freedoms are suspended and so on. No, all these small individual freedoms are left to us. You can engage in sex, in all perversions, consumerism, you can make fun of everything, life is one big public spectacle and so on, but at the same time, beneath it, it's again a kind of a new it keeps itself in the background, new authoritarian state. To call it by its name, Groucho Marx authoritarianism. Really, what isn't Berlusconi something like Groucho Marx from Duck Soup in Power? This is our future, I claim. I think that uh, we will have to reinvent something that I'm still, I still want to call communism, which has to be totally redefined. Of course, we have to forget all these Leninist uh, ideas of party state taking over, whatever. But it's still communism in the sense that, to put it in Marxist Hegelian terms, that it is the core problem is that we are more and more emerging as subjects deprived of our symbolic substance. Uh, so even at this level we have some kind of a, how should I put it, proletarian position. In this sense, I think, again, we should redefine proletarian position, we should stick to communism. So we are back, the communists. Thank you very much. I hate that face, but that's another uh, problem. What I wanted to say here is something very simple. I don't even have a precise idea how it will be done, certainly not in the old state socialism way. All I'm saying is that we are confronting problems which concern our commons, that's why I keep the word communism. Only some kind of a popular mobilization outside state and outside the market can do the job.
every day we are getting new proofs, like the fiasco of the last Copenhagen ecological negotiations among big powers and so on, that neither the market nor the state can do it. And if I return to that problem of who will voice the discontent at liberalism, uh, again, the problem is that only the right-wing nationalist populists are effectively doing it. And so I'm not so much against liberalism. My message to liberals is, are you aware that you, in the sense not they personally, but your own dynamic of your own system is generating this nationalist, populist, potentially racist reaction? And that the only way to save what is worth saving in liberalism, sense of freedom, solidarity, and so on, all that, Liberalism, what is worth saving in it, will be saved only through a revitalized, more radical left. I think the future will be to simplify to the utmost Berlusconi or new communism. Thank you very much, Slavoj Žižek. Thank you for being the, offering me a mouthpiece for my propaganda. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>